The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Started, uh, let's spend some time in prayer. Our great God, uh, we come to you today with excitement because we get to read your very words. I pray that you would create a culture here among us where we're first-handers with your word, where we long to gaze over these words, to understand what comes before them, what comes after them, how do they connect. Lord, build that culture among us. In a time where our culture is increasingly less literate in a number of ways, we like sound bites, we like uh, to just be told kind of what the gist of things is. I pray that we would not treat your word that way, but that we would gaze into it with wonder. Lord, um, it's Father's Day, and we want to thank you for the fathers in our lives. Some of us have had good fathers. Some of us haven't. Some of us have been really let down by our fathers. Whatever the case, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't idolize our human fathers, and we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't be paralyzed by the lack of a good father. But in either case, we would be pointed to you. You are the perfect father. You care for us in the ways we need. Not always the ways we want, but the ways we need. And Lord, I pray for the men here in, in our midst who are fathers. Lord, forgive us. Forgive me for the ways in which I've failed as a father. Lord, I pray that you would train us up to be more like you. I pray that we as fathers would teach our children. I pray that we would love them dearly, that we would show them compassion, that we would help them. I pray, God, that we would lay down our lives for our families. Put this culture inside of us as fathers. Lord, we don't want to be like what we see in the world where there are so many, where, where fatherhood is some sort of entitlement um, to, to be treated like, like a king of a realm or, or something like that. Lord, make us servant fathers, but make us bold and assertive as well. Make us courageous in our leadership. Lord, um, we do pray now that as we turn to the book of Hebrews that you would amaze us with what we find in these pages. I pray not only for today, but for our whole series, God, that this book would be so important in our lives that we would grasp it, that we would apply it, that we would see the world differently because of how you've met us here. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today starts our series in Hebrews, and it's going to take us into 2023. Uh, we'll have some breaks along the line, uh, along the way, so don't worry about that. It, if it starts to feel monotonous, that's right when we'll have um, holidays or, or whatever. But Hebrews is a great book, and it's, it's somewhat underappreciated, I feel. And it's unique in that it is actually a sermon. The book of Hebrews is one big sermon, but it's been written down, and it's been sent out as a letter. 
And so in the closing verses of the book, we see some remarks to the, the original churches that would have received it. And yet at the beginning of the book, it's just, it just opens like an intro to a sermon. And what an intro it is. The description of Jesus here, if you caught that is, as Chris read, the description of Jesus here is stunning. In Greek, these first four verses are all just like one long, beautifully constructed sentence. And the book of Hebrews contains probably the most stylistically beautiful writing in the New Testament. The human author seems to have been somewhat of an expert at the Greek language, and we don't know quite who it was. Uh, the theology of the book of Hebrews, it's, it's certainly compatible with Paul, but the grammar and the syntax and the phrasing, it's, it's very different. So whoever wrote it, um, we do know from the book that they seem to have known Timothy quite well, who was a, a close co-worker of Paul's. So over the century, people have made these guesses of, well, which one of Paul's ministry partners could this be? Who wrote the book of Hebrews? And some people say Luke or Barnabas or Epaphroditus. My favorite theory was put forward by Martin Luther. He said that uh, he, he thought Apollos was the author because Apollos was Jewish and it's stated in Acts that he was a very eloquent speaker and a convincing teacher of the faith. Well, whatever the case, we know that this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit and that's the authorship that most of all we need to celebrate. But why should we care about the book of Hebrews. Why should we even take the time to digest these first four verses here this morning? Do you ever feel like the Christian life is hard? It's hard to be shaped by God's word more than other voices in our society. It's hard to pray when it feels sometimes like no one's listening. It's hard to love your enemies it's hard to forgive the deep, deep hurts. And when life seems to kick you when you're down, it's hard to believe that this is all worthwhile. Like, where is it all going? Sometimes doubts like this might tempt us to just go back to living the way that came naturally to us. Go back to the path that wasn't so lonely, the life where everything was easier and more straightforward. And sometimes if we're honest with ourselves, we wonder, are we going to get to the end and then realize we were fools because we took what little life we had and we made it so much harder than it really needed to be. Well, the first recipients of the book of Hebrews seem to have had those same feelings, those same questions, and they were of a Jewish upbringing and they'd fallen in line with the first or second generation of Christians. But now persecution was coming and so they, they just naturally wondered, is, is it worth it all? What if we just kind of slip right back into synagogue worship? What if we just drop off that Jesus bit and return to our heritage, to a, to a safe place, a familiar lifestyle? Might we be happier? Would it really make that much difference in the end? And the book of Hebrews answers with a resounding, yes, it would make that much difference. And it's actually those who drift back in step with the status quo who will be proven fools in the end. Hebrews argues throughout the book that persevering in our Christian faith is essential because our Christ is incomparable. So we're still Christians because we wake up each day and we consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith. And we know that if we turn from him, there's quite simply nowhere else to go. And we would regret it forever to an unspeakable degree. So... Let's start, even this morning, considering 
the incomparable Jesus. Verse 1 begins, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You know, I watched Star Wars a lot as a kid, and, and these first words, uh, long ago, at, at many times and many ways, it always reminds me of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. I, I don't think George Lucas was uh, intentionally riffing off of the New Testament, uh, but but there is this epic quality that's present in, in these words here. And I hope that as you get to know the book of Hebrews, these first verses do kind of just feel like that trumpet blast at the start of the, the Star Wars anthem. And, um, and it's like you're seeing those giant yellow words just scrolling down before you, kind of drawing you into this story. And the first thing we need to see is this astounding statement in verse 1. It says, God spoke. God spoke. It's, it's probably the most important thing that we could ever be told. Throughout the book of Hebrews, it's reiterated again and again that the God who exists is a speaking God. And that makes all the difference in the world to us. God spoke. This is a huge claim, right? A, a being outside of our existence spoke authoritatively into our realm of existence. Now, the anti-supernatural bias in our times makes this a huge hurdle to embracing the Christian message. But if you look about it, at it from a different angle, can you prove that God has not spoken? Have you even examined the evidence? This verse reminds us that he spoke many ways and at many times through the prophets. And that's exactly what we see in the pages of the Hebrew Scriptures, our, our uh, Old Testament. And the Old Testament is woven together over thousands of years through different genres of writing by authors of drastically different backgrounds, all seamlessly flowing together into one story fulfilled in Jesus. How do you account for that? How do you account for this book? You need to take this book seriously, this prophetic witness. Whether you're coming from an awareness of Christianity generally or whether you're a stranger to these thoughts, or even if you're a complete atheist, if you're going to deal honestly with the world that surrounds you, you're going to have to come to an informed conclusion about the Bible. You know, more than 70% of Americans believe that there is no absolute truth. And where there's no truth, good luck finding hope. And maybe that accounts for the steep increases in depression that we see in the last 20 years. Because, you know, our speech to ourselves is not very powerful to change ourselves. But if God speaks, well, then that's authoritative speech. That's effectual speech that can change things. And if God has really spoken, then that speech is always relevant to humanity, which is why the Bible by far is the most widely published, purchased, distributed, and translated book of all time. It's been fully translated into 704 different languages, but with portions translated into 2,600 more languages. So if you're drifting away from the faith, I hope you know that people from every culture and every century are drawn into this divine speech, and I hope that that observation will help you to resolve to press into it. Well, as we look more closely at these verses, I want you to see the following things. This is my outline of sorts. Two ages, seven roles, one name. Two ages, seven roles, one name. That's where we're going. And our discussion of two ages happens in verses one and two. We see two ages that divide all of history. First, long ago, 
at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets long ago at many times and in many ways. That's the age that has now passed. That's the first age, the age that's summed up in the Old Testament of your Bible. God's speech in that age came in many installments, many modes. So there were dreams, miracles, visions, riddles, typology kind of acted out in history. There were prophetic oracles. There were also just clear conversations that God had with people like Abraham or Moses or the prophets. But Hebrews summarizes all these revelations as many times and in many ways. Having so many instances of God's speech, that's definitely a good thing. But we also get the impression here that it's also a bit of a sign of incompleteness. The fact that there needed to be one more speech, one more speech, one more speech to fill in all these details. And the Old Testament actually ends with God promising a famine of his words. There would be a a drought of any divine revelation. And that's exactly what happened for the next 400 years. There was not closure to this story. A final word was desperately needed. And these words given in the first age, they were given to our fathers. Remember, this book was originally written for Jewish Christians who would have felt, they would have felt a direct ethnic lineage with people like David and Moses and Abraham. Uh, But we, I don't know if anyone in this room is Jewish, I'll assume not, Um, non-Jewish Christians are not a separate family of faith. Romans chapter 11 says that we have been grafted into this tree and some of the natural branches who have rejected their Messiah have been broken off. So even if you're not Jewish, I encourage you to start thinking of all the Old Testament figures as your ancestors. Because in Christ, that's your reality. Get to know their stories and their testimonies in earnest because this is your family story. Now, the writings of the Bible before the time of Jesus, they're they're wondrous, but they were pointing forward to something more, to the age to come. And what they were pointing to is what we see described here in verse 2. It says, In these last days... He has spoken to us by his son. So verse 2 describes then the age in which we live. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. So you can see the blatant contrast that's being painted here. We had a piecemeal, multi-form revelation from God before, but now we have everything we need in the revealing of Jesus. Jesus is God's singular final word. Now, I want to stress, that doesn't mean that he makes irrelevant the, the words that came before. We still need our Old Testament. Jesus is there, too. He is prefigured throughout the Old Testament. And the whole Bible, together, these um, many ways of revelation, and then Jesus is the final word. It is one story. Ultimately, it is one revelation, even though here it's being shown in two parts. And Jesus is God's singular final word. Nothing else is needed. No further prophets were required. That's why Islam and Mormonism with their prophets after Jesus, those are just sad distortions of the one true God's speech. So the point of this passage is that we've turned a corner and we found everything we need for all time in Jesus. And we've turned that corner in these last days. What does he mean by that phrase? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. He means that in Jesus, this world's history is being wrapped up, 
having arrived at the, the fullness of time to redeem people for God, that work is done at the, at the cross and resurrection in one sense. The end of history has arrived. Nothing else is required to happen other than the gathering of people into that salvation or confirmation of their judgment. So now he is bringing history to, to a close, and it's in an often terrifying way, but also a, a wonderful way before he returns to judge and to rebuild creation as it is meant to be for all of eternity. And if God, in his mercy, wants these last days to extend for another 2,000 years, well, those are the days in which we live. Now, if you're from a Jewish background, you would definitely be confronted by this claim that Jesus is the fulfillment of your tradition of faith, tracing all the way back to the dawn of humanity. And if you're at all wondering how you could share that good news with your Jewish friends, then I want to suggest that the book of Hebrews is a great place to start. Keep that in mind as we go through this series. Once I encouraged um, a seriously practicing Jewish friend to just, just read the, the book of Hebrews, I dare you. And he did it. And he was stunned. He said, he, whoever wrote this book, I mean, they, they definitely knew their stuff. I'll give you that. So I pray that the arguments of Hebrews are still kind of haunting him and, and rolling around in his head uh, until he embraces Christ. This book is great motivation for us to be bold with our Jewish friends. But I know probably most of your friends aren't Jewish. Probably most of your friends aren't even familiar with the prophets. So what do we do with that? Because we're looking at, well, okay, there were these many revelations and they lead us to the final revelation. What if people don't even, they have no clue about these words that came before? It doesn't mean that we have no lead up to the good news, right? Elsewhere, the Bible says that God determined our allowed periods and, and living places so that we might seek him and perhaps feel our way toward him, though he's not far from each one of us. And there are stories of God grabbing people's attention, who would, those who would become his. He pulls them even out of misguided religious traditions, or maybe, maybe the tradition you grew up in isn't a religion at all. Like, I've heard of people coming to Christ through dreams, through something they encountered in nature, um, through a godless movie, through a, a bad trip on hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, he can use anything. He's not limited in any way. He can use all these things to bring people to his word, to the revelation of Jesus. So if you haven't heard the prophets, but God has used something else to bring you to this message today, know that, that he's been preparing you for this, the final authoritative word that he speaks to all who will listen, his son. But we could ask, well, if the son is the final word that we needed, why would God not just reveal the son from the very beginning? Why did we have to go through these thousands of years um, of the old covenant before Jesus came? Did you ever wonder that? I think a big answer is that we need to see our need of a Savior before we see our Savior. If we only saw Jesus, uh, we might ask, mm, is life really that bad without him? The Old Testament shows us clearly that yes, <laughs> yes it is. So we need the progression of God's speech from creation to law to the failed history of Israel to the longing of exiles this is all necessary in each of our lives as we get to understand him and his purposes more and more. 
So, you know, it's not wrong to share the gospel just from the New Testament, just from a gospel, but as you're, as you're seeking to, to help someone understand the faith and truly grasp who Jesus is, who their God is, you need to lead them eventually from creation to new creation. We need the whole story. Well, from this view of the history of the world in two ages, we see that, final, that Jesus is the final prophet. And Jesus brings God's decisive words for humanity, for salvation and for judgment. And then next in verses 2 and 3, we have this list of, of all these things of who Jesus is and what he's done. So seven roles that epitomize who Jesus is. Seven roles. Who, who is Jesus? If I, if I ask the author of Hebrews, who is Jesus? This is his answer to me. First, he is the appointed heir of all things. The Bible paints a picture that the world was given to humanity to rule in good ways under God's ultimate rule. But, desperate to take God out of the equation, we unwittingly sign title over to God's enemy, who promised us everything but gave us oppression and death instead. But Jesus won it back. And so everything that we clamor and fight for in this world, it actually belongs to Jesus. And this inheritance will be enjoyed together by all who stand with him in the end. Second, we see that the world was created through him. Not only was the world made for Jesus as its heir, but it was also made through him. This same Jesus was the one through whom God created the world. He's not only the master of the end of history, he was the vessel through whom it all started in the beginning. And this is why elsewhere in the Bible he's called the Alpha and the Omega, which are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's kind of shocking, I know, to, to hear that this claim that you wouldn't even exist were it not for the role of Jesus in bringing you and everything into existence. And third, we see that he is the radiance of the glory of God. In Exodus and in 1 Kings, we read that the brilliant glory of God, the Shekinah glory, filled the tabernacle and filled the temple where the people would worship. And it served to assure the people that their God was really with them. But the Gospel of John says this about Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but the only Son who is God, He has made Him known. So if you would look for some brilliant assurance that God is living and active in this world, look no farther than the person of Jesus. Fourth, we read that He is the exact imprint of God's nature exact representation. It means he is the same divine essence. He doesn't just reflect God like the, the moon reflects the sun. No, Jesus can do these ultimate things like we've said because he is very God of very God. And this is where an understanding of the Trinity is essential. So Jesus isn't just a spin-off from God. He's not a normal man who was somehow endowed with divinity. The Son is God, and he exists from all eternity past in perfect relationship with the Father and the Spirit, one God in three persons. And this is a mystery. I, I don't expect you to understand it. I expect you to marvel at it. 
God is totally unlike any being that we can grasp with our finite minds. Many people feel that, well, if God exists, uh, I think he owes it to each of us to kind of slap us in the face and say, here I am. But what if he did that in the person of Jesus, in the very center of human history? Maybe you should learn more about Jesus because this ancient text claims that he is a visible and exact reflection of everything that we need to know about the unseen God. Fifth, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Not only does history begin and end with Jesus, but we read in verse 3 that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He upholds the now. Even the tiniest subatomic particles that that make up your, your body, the ones we haven't even discovered yet, those are being held together today by Jesus. Do you find any beauty or enjoyment in this world? Any sights or sounds or smells or experiences that give you pleasure? Those exist only by the word of his power. So pay attention to these words. Not only is Jesus the end, the, the heir, not only is he the beginning of all that was made, he is the middle. He is sustaining all by the word of his power. And there's an important application point in that, I think, that if he upholds the world, you don't have to. Stop trying to be Atlas. Some of you need to realize that you can let something drop, that it might even be good for you to fail sometimes so that you can remember you're not God. I say this as someone inclined toward perfectionism myself. We've got to get perspective because there's no joy in trying to be everything perfectly to everyone. There's no joy if we're tempted to hate ourselves if something turns out less than what we are aiming for. So embrace this path to humility. Praise Jesus as the only one who sustains this world that we live in. Worship him by acknowledging and embracing your limitations and point to his sufficiency, not your own. Six, he made purification for sins. Uh, it almost says this point in passing, just after making purification for sins, comma, and, but this, this important work of atonement, it is not going to be a passing thought in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's going to be really the, a main point of the whole book, starting in chapter 8, verse 1 and following. So we see that Jesus doesn't just uphold the universe. He entered into it, and he did something in history to put it right again. He made purification for sins. And this is at the very center of the Christian message. It's the essential good news that not only do you have a good and all-powerful creator, but he offers purification for your sins because of Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. This is a foreign concept to our culture. So let me take a step back. If I asked, what's wrong with the world today? All of us should rightfully say, I am. We are part of a global problem that amounts to a rebellion against our designer and our king. And we've all wanted to do life our way, regardless at times of the cost to others or to our own integrity. And the penalty for this rebellion is death. Yes, physical death, but also eternal separation from the God in whose realm alone good is to be found. Now, every world religion sees that there's a problem with the world. And every world religion has some prescribed method that you have to go through in order to make yourself pure or right with the universe. But only biblical Christianity announces that the supreme deity himself 
entered human history to do the impossible thing for you. As long as we seek salvation mostly just for the desire for personal safety or, or um, to appreciate what's true and good and beautiful, uh, we'll have a form of godliness but without power. We have to see that it's the cleansing of sin that God insists upon. This is the center of the Christian faith. And for some of you to follow Jesus, you need your eyes open to see that you actually need purification. You need redemption. Maybe you're a, a self-made person and you feel like, well, I haven't done anything that I didn't need to do uh, in order to survive and thrive in this world. You've done the best with what you've been dealt, you feel. I want to challenge you to take your eyes off of comparing yourself to other people and instead look at a perfectly holy God to whom you owe your very existence. He made this world to operate in good ways, and we have all violated that path as we've elevated ourselves above others and even above him. Now, you can deny your guilt forever if you want, but what I hope you see is that a path to wholeness and true joy exists in agreeing with God's words about us and gratefully embracing the covering for guilt and shame that he's already freely provided. For others, though, the miracle you need is to be given faith to believe that you really can be forgiven. You know yourself too well. The damage you've done in the lives of others, it plays over and over again in your head. Is there any escape from that? Is such news too good to be true? Well, I encourage you to keep looking, to get to know the people of Jesus. We're not perfect, but I think you'll find that we're getting better all the time and that already we're free in a way that other people simply aren't free. Free from the past, increasingly free from the worst parts that come naturally to us, free from condemnation, free from regret, all because Jesus purified us from sin that day 2,000 years ago when he stood as a substitute for his people on the cross. Jesus is the final priest, and this is going to be a central theme of the book of Hebrews. If we want to be saved, we have to understand how Jesus is the only priest we need, purifying us from sin and bringing us safely near to God. You don't need a merely human priest or pastor to do some sort of magic to give you greater access to God. That access is already fully provided in Jesus. We can only point you to him. But as central as atonement on the cross is to Jesus' mission, we can't just stop there either. We have to understand what came next with his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. So the seventh role, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is picturing the enthronement of the risen Christ. Jesus is right now sitting on the throne of the universe. And that doesn't just mean, oh, good, that means we, we can go to heaven when we die. No, his kingship now means that he protects and he provides for us now as his citizens in his realm. Even when his rule and his leadership leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. To sit down at the right hand in the ancient world, that signified taking up authority, taking a position of power. So this is kind of when it says... He sat down. This is kind of like a cosmic mic drop, just showing that Jesus is the only one with whom we should be obsessed, we should be cheering for. He's king over all. 
Now, chapter 2, verse 8, it points out that at present, we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus. And, and that's often the cause of our unbelief or fear. How can I obey this king when I, I, I can't see that he's in control over everything? It doesn't feel like he's in control over everything. How can I trust him? That's, that's one of the questions that the book of Hebrews will get after, and we'll talk about it a lot in this series. But for now, these seven roles that Jesus fulfills, I want you to see that they paint this picture of the ultimate hero, the only one worthy of our worship. And because God the Son has accomplished all these things that God the Father appointed for him to do, in verse 4 we see that there's no denying that he is greater than any other spiritual being. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And this is a bit of a teaser for next week where we'll, we'll get into the topic of angels even more fully. But the Bible does acknowledge other spirits of various kinds, yet none of them even closely compare with the perfections and infinite wisdom and power and goodness of God the Son. There's one name that is superior to all others, and there is no other name by which we must be saved. Do we understand the power of a superior name? What does that mean, a superior name? In our society, we don't really place much stock anymore in, um, in uh, a name or a reputation. It used to be, you know, you'd fight duels uh, to, to protect the honor of your name or of someone else's name. We don't, we don't really get that as much anymore. There are still some cultures that do, though, and I think we can understand it if we try. For example, why do we like superhero stories? I think it does something for us when the very name of the hero strikes fear into the evil schemers and also gives hope to those who desperately need it. And if you look in every Marvel hero or every DC hero, you will find depicted shadows and echoes of the one true hero. But can we imagine a, a less fictional name, more excellent than others, where if, if you just mention the name, this whole wave of emotion just comes over you. I'm sure we all have examples we can think of. I, I think about Michael Jordan. Like if you were in Chicago or pretty much alive anywhere in the 1990s, you know the power that that name had. There was a sense that he could move and he could soar in ways that no one else could. And you, there was this gut feeling that if he was going to step onto the court, then everything was going to be all right. He, dominance was assured. And even beyond Jordan's raw talent, I don't, I'm not sure we've ever seen another athlete in any sport who had his level of determination. It's like he could just will himself to win, and then he would. If you remember, the, I think the ultimate example of that was Game 5 of the 97 Finals when Jordan came down with fever, chills, cramping, vomiting from severe food poisoning. He looked pathetic. He was crying. And his teammates practically had to carry him to the bench during timeouts. But when the clock was running, he was able to flip a mental switch and he posted 38 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals, and a block to lead the Bulls to a 90-88 victory over the Utah Jazz. And everyone knew the value of that name, including advertisers. 
making Jordan the, the first billionaire sports star. But as great as Jordan's legacy is, I mean, any comparison like this to the name of Jesus is just asinine. All creation will proclaim Jesus' worth. His people will joyfully welcome his glorious return. His enemies will hide under rocks out of terror at his coming. But even now, whether out of worship or disdain, no other name on earth remotely compares with his fame. If you're not utterly and completely obsessed with Jesus Christ, what are you doing? Heed and hear the only prophet you need. Draw near to your final priest so that your defiled conscience can be purified. Submit, honor, obey, and trust your king. God has spoken through Jesus to fulfill all that thousands of years of prophecy had depicted. The Father has spoken through his Son to reveal himself in this world. And God the Son has entered human history to complete all of his purposes for humanity. This Jesus is the ultimate one. He's ultimate in time. He's ultimate in deity. He's ultimate in the perfection of his finished work. And we live at the most privileged of times where we're able to see all this clearly, to see the person of Christ in his completed work. There is no need for further words. If you have a hero like this, you don't let him go. Whatever else you lose in the process of clinging to him, so be it. Hold fast to Christ. Hold fast to this confession. Don't shrink back. Persevere. Endure. Don't drift away. Don't fall away. Don't come short. Don't be hardened. Don't grow bitter. Don't neglect salvation. Don't refuse God's speech.